0: Wonderful. We're all good. Okay. Thanks, Bill. Oh, hang on. Let's get into let,
1: it. Well, let me get rid of this. Because I've got a message in front of me now. Yeah, just get rid of it. Okay. Yep. Can you hear me? Yes, thanks. Perfect. Right. The hunter, the hunter generally is quite a small area, a, a small area for for viticulture. And, and quite a small area in terms of wine production as well. The, the very large companies, the largest sort of five companies in Australia are, are not in the Hunter, or at least they are there in a very, to a very small extent. So the Hunter the is a small area. The last figures I saw are about 3% of Australia's production production um, So a lot of smaller wineries, none of the really big guys, and then there's a few, there's four or five, what would be regarded as medium-sized wineries, and then there's a lot of small wineries, so uh, up maybe 100 small wineries in in the Hunter. Um, And of the small ones, Allendale would be one of the larger of the small, but still a long way short of... um, the medium-sized companies like Tyrrells or uh, McWilliams, um, though those size companies, Broken I think would would fall into that medium-sized category now. So lots of small wineries and lots of wineries focused on cellar door sales, uh, sales through the the on the uh, the retail outlet. at the the winery. Um, There's also, the other thing about the Hunter is there's a lot of people, there's a lot of labels, but not necessarily wineries, producing wineries. So there's a lot of people who might have 20 or 30 acres of vines who have wine made for them on contract. And so their business model is more viticulture than it is winemaking. So even though there, there might be 120 labels, there is significant less actually production facilities. Um, and even Allendale, we, we do a little bit of contract winemaking for some very small growers, um, maybe four or five small growers, and we, we produce their wine for them, uh, which, they, which they sell. But they're from grapes that are grown on their properties. The Just a quick question what? bill oh, yeah. what,
0: um, what are the characteristics of your definition of a small give it a bit of a size so how much wines produce things like that
1: uh look small is probably small is probably under 400 tons I would think and and we're probably producing a you know in a bigger year we're doing about 300 so we're 200 to 300 anything over 400 500 I would Certainly anything over 500 tonnes, I would consider medium size. Okay. And how many uh, bottles of wine would 400 tonnes be? 400 tonnes, we generally work on about 70 dozen bottles to a tonne. So um, how good's their maths? Um, (laughs) There's a few good mathematicians in here and they're better than me. (laughs) 70, 70 by 400. Um, dozens of, bo- of bottles is, is about... I've got a lot. They're under pressure. <laughs> uh, is that 28,000? Dozen? Yeah, I'll get a calculator while you're <laughs> <laughs> Um, So, yeah, uh, I mean, that's the story of the hunter. G- generally small scale, um, high production costs, land in the hunter is very expensive, um, because wineries tend to be small um, it, it tends to make it tends to push the cost of production up um, because crops are, are light in the hunter compared to other regions like you know hilltops or Barossa South Australian even Victorian wine areas have much higher crops so because the cost per acre or per hectare is a is a fixed cost, then obviously the higher the yield of the grapes, the the lower the cost of of input. So input costs in the Hunter are very high. Um, I mean, capital costs uh, in Australia generally tend to be quite high. Um, Labor costs in Australia generally tend to be, well, very high compared to a lot of countries that we compete with. So um, and costs of compliance in Australia tend to be very high when compared to a lot of countries that we compete with. So, Could you give, could you give Bill an example of what compliance means, please? Compliance is, is really just operating a business, um, you know, and meeting the legal framework that, that the government dictates to us. So in any country... We have to comply to labour laws, for instance. Um, So in Australia, we're we're required to pay a minimum amount of money for staff. Um, And that, that rate, I think, in the wine industry is somewhere between $28 and $30 an hour. That's like a minimum amount of money we have to pay to comply to those laws. And when compared to overseas countries, for instance, um, and in fact, most countries, South Africa, European countries, South American countries, even even the United States. I mean, you know, I did a vintage in the United States and um, they were paying people perhaps a quarter of what we pay people in Australia. Now, A lot of the labour they were using were illegal immigrants, Um, but their costs, their labour costs, were significantly less than ours because of this huge pool of um, Mexican labour that they tie into and and pay very little for. So I think I've made this point before, Martin, but, you know, nobody is suggesting we want to pay people less money. And and nobody's suggesting we shouldn't be meeting our obligations to not pollute the environment. And nobody's suggesting that we shouldn't operate in a a safe environment. So occupational health and safety issues in Australia are another big compliance cost. Um, We have Compliance costs in that we have to pay superannuation in Australia for for workers that we have. So all of these things have have a lot of social value to the country and they're they're obviously a a very fair and equitable thing that, that companies have to do. But once we compete internationally and we find we're competing with countries who who don't have the same compliance costs, we are at a a very significant disadvantage. There's no avoiding that conclusion.
0: Okay, that's great, Bill. Um, If I could sort of, because I'm conscious of your time, I really appreciate it, if I could shift to another point, which is locational factors, that's another sheet, next page for the guys, and as you jump around... um, Yeah, the
1: hunter... um, the Hunter significantly is the Hunter is a difficult area to grow grapes, and that this again makes it a comparatively high-cost area to grow grapes. And it's the nature of the weather we we tend to have um, a subtropical climate. Grapes traditionally around the world, and even in Australia, are grown in more Mediterranean style climates. So climates where they tend to be predominantly winter rainfall, humidity in summer tends to be lower. Um, We tend to have higher humidity in summer, but we also have predominantly summer rainfall. So November and February traditionally are our two wettest months. Um, And that can cause us A couple of issues, firstly, through the growing season, um, high humidity and rainfall can create disease pressure. And that disease pressure, again, can add to our costs. Um, And the other thing that we find, especially through the vintage period, which is sort of February, the end of January into the middle of March, if we're getting a lot of rain, the grapes can, can rot. Because of the rain. So that can add significantly to our costs as well. If we, we might lose one crop in, we might lose one crop in six or seven, which effectively adds another one-sixth to our cost because that year we don't pick anything. So a lot of other regions comparatively do better than that. They might lose one crop in 20 years. So there's a very big difference and a very big cost implication to that weather. Um, is that what you mean about... Yeah,
0: definitely. So, so you've, talked about, um, you've talked about the climate, are there other factors like topography, site, aspect, these, soil, those sorts of things that make the so, area
1: good? Well, the, the two things that determine wine style are, are climate and soil. They're the, they're the two main inputs. Um, soils in the Hunter tend to be, first of all, variable, um, but secondly, quite infertile. Uh, they're not very fertile soils. And that in itself, again, reduces the, 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 the amount of crop that we get from vineyards. So the, the fact that crop levels are lower means that the costs per, per bottle are higher to produce wine. Mm-hmm. Um Site selection, not so important in the hunter. Site selection becomes a lot more critical in cooler climates. So if you go to Tasmania, for instance, site selection or aspect of the site is critical because sunshine becomes the limiting factor. So what you're looking for in those cool climates is a a north, preferably northeast Facing site, so you maximise the amount of sun that you're getting um, through the growing period. Um, in the Hunter, uh, that that's much less of a consideration. So the the aspect of the site, or the site itself, or the row orientation of vines, is far less important in the Hunter, and I would say not important at all. So the the row orientation. So
0: you're saying it can go north, south, east or west. It doesn't matter.
1: It doesn't. No, in the Hunter it doesn't matter. Whereas in um, in cooler climates, what you're wanting to do is maximise the amount of sunlight hitting leaves. Okay. In in warmer climates, and um, and especially in the irrigated areas, like if you go somewhere like Griffith, or the Riverland in South Australia. You know, sunshine is just not a limiting factor. So, okay, and you know. I've shown the students
0: from the photos, like an aerial shot of the map and the rest of it. You've got a dam and a big, a bigger dam on the other side of the road, and you've got Blacks Creek further down there. Does any of that water play into the actual work you do on your property?
1: Yeah, we we get water. Well, first of all, we we get water from. The PID, which is a private irrigation district, and that's a that's a program that's an irrigation program that's owned by each of the wineries, so as shareholders, as it were, in in the um, in the irrigation company, and we pump water from the Hunter River. Now, that that water tends to be tends to be very expensive. Um, $250 a megalitre, Um, so water tends to be very expensive in the Hunter, and uh, the economic rationalist, of course, when something's expensive, you use it more sparingly, and so water tends to be used sparingly uh, in times when, you know, it's very dry, and, and it tends to be used efficiently, so largely through drip irrigation. So the water is actually dripped literally drop by drop on the vine so that there are a lot less losses. Whereas when water's cheap and if you go to the riverland, irrigation is often flood irrigation. So literally just megalitres of water running down the the rows, much of which just simply evaporates. Um, So we tend to be far more efficient uses of water largely based on the fact that water is so expensive to so buy. When,
0: so we sorry to interrupt. So when you when you say we've got Blacks Creek down the road, so in these PIDs, do you have to pay for or someone build pipes for you from the hunter? Because it's a long way away. How close
1: it is, is it is quite a way away. The hunt the hunters I mean by the time it comes through the pipes, you know, the hunters probably 15 minutes drive from the winery. So it's a significant distance. But there is but everybody who who want who wanted water, all the vineyards who wanted water are on the PID. So those pipes run along pretty much every road. And if you drive around the Hunter you'll see these tiny little metal sheds that are you know booster stations for the for the irrigation water. Okay, but we also we can also get water from Black Creek as well, though. So Black Creek is an is an unregulated source of water. Um, it, it's not great water. It, it largely flows um, in times of drought because it it it's a it takes the sewage treatment water from Cessnock. Yeah. So even in in a drought, it keeps running. But it, it's very high, very high nutrient load. So uh, very high BOD water, which is, I think it's biological oxygen demand. It's, um, it's water that is very high in, in phosphates, high in nitrogen. Um, occasionally, we get blue-green algal blooms in Black Creek course of of the nature of this water being so high in nutrient um, and that that's very problematic blue green actually, algae... actually
0: bill that's very good i might just pause you there for a sec because this is what you did last year you're brilliant you transition into the next bullet point which is environmental constraints so i might get them to turn their sheets over and you, the blue green algae and all, all the pesticides and fungicides and weedicides and everything you do to so say you're aware we're interested in environmental constraints, climate, human impacts on the environment, such as pollution and ecological sustainability. I know that's a mouthful, but I'll guide you. Can mm. we go back to what you were saying about the water quality and the blue-green algae, and let your flow go? Well,
1: water quality, water quality in the Hunter is 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 actually really good. The only the only problem with water in the Hunter is that it can be slightly saline because it it also has a lot of water being pumped into it especially in high flow time from from mining. Um, so the mines are responsible for increasing the salinity of, of water in the in the in the in the system. Um, and in fact, there was a mine in Cessnock that was releasing very saline water into Black Creek. So it, that basically meant the water was unusable. Uh, because this water is being pumped out of mine workings from a long way underground, and it has very high levels of salt. Now, grapevines do not like salt, and in fact, not many plants do, but grapevines in particular don't like salty water. So that water from, uh, from mining can be quite problematic. But generally speaking, um, water from the Hunter River is, is good quality, um it it's it's the problem to some extent is that it's regarded as low security water so water in the hunter river is divided into high security water and low security water so the power stations and the mines have high security water and then if if there are low flows in the hunter river then the people with low security water like the wineries don't don't get water at all. So the balance is tipped very strongly in favor of of mining and power generation in the upper Hunter, which is where the Hunter River starts its course. Um, But water in Black Creek, um, not as good. Um, Higher salinity levels, as I said, much higher nutrient load. Um, So what we would tend to do is blend the two water types together. So we would buy some from the PID, um, good quality, but high cost. And then we would use some water from Black Creek, which is virtually zero cost, uh, but lesser quality. Excellent. Um, In terms of um,
0: environmental constraints when it comes to the actual grapes themselves.
1: Well, um, I think I alluded to this before. The Hunter is a is a higher humidity area. Humidity is a problem in the Hunter for grape vines, and so that requires that we spray, <coughs> excuse me, fungicides um, more often than some other regions. Um, we and it also means we, you know, we have more problems with, you know, with grass invading the the grapevines as well. There has been a huge change though in the time that I've been in the wine industry, and there's been a real move away from um, you know more toxic chemicals. Um, I think the advan- the the example I gave last year was we used to with caterpillars we used to spray you know a, an insecticide, which was if you go back far enough it was. DDT which of course has been outlawed in Australia now for probably 40 years but um, we used to use insecticides which were which are not environmentally very sound but in the last few years we've been using a bacteria which of course is a natural um, it's a naturally occurring bacteria that they simply build up we spray it out on the vines it gets on the caterpillars and that stops them you know stops them growing so there has been a real move towards that style of organic sprays away from you know pesticides and in fact the whole, the whole industry is 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 quite heavily regulated we work on these um, things called MRls, which is minimum residual levels of chemicals in the finished wine. And so, wines have to uh, be made to have these MR to be below these MRls for for most chemicals that we would use in the vineyard.
0: Um- are there any constraints when it comes to the grape varieties that you may use, and where there is? Where do you get the grapes you want from?
1: no in Australia there's no constraints you you We could go out and plant any variety that we wanted to um, The Europeans have a very different uh view of grapes and in if you go to France for instance um in some areas you can only grow one or two sometimes three or four types of grapes in that area. So they're they're very heavily regulated. Um, The the number of varieties you can blend are heavily regulated through the old world. So the old world winemaking countries like Germany, Italy, uh, Spain, France, there's a lot of regulation in place. The new world winemaking countries, there's none of that regulation. So in essence, we can grow whatever we like. It's the market that determines what we should plant and grow. Um, Some varieties are a lot more suited than others, that's for sure. And so that's a defining factor, I think, in what varieties we grow and plant is that we tend to try and grow varieties, not only in the hunter, but we get fruit from a number of wine regions around Australia we tend to try and buy varieties that are very suited to those to those regions okay so the hunter tends to specialize in three four varieties so chardonnay and semillon in in white grapes and shiraz tends to be the predominant black grape so the hunter really sort of specializes in those three three varieties they seem to be what the hunter most winemakers in the hunter would recognize as the most the most relevant varieties for the hunter
0: excellent now the in this still in this section on ecological dimensions could you tell us a little bit about what you're doing in the space of ecological sustainability
1: oh well in terms of sustainability i mean vineyards i mean as much as you know, they're are a monoculture, which, which which have their own their own problems. Um, Viticultural itself is you know is quite a sustainable enterprise. We we tend to um, we tend to put most of the well we reuse all the water that we mm-hmm. generate as waste, so that tends to get pumped back onto the vineyard or onto the lawns. We tend to incorporate back into the vineyards all the all the solid waste. So once we crush grapes, uh, we obviously only use the juice from them. So all the skins and seeds, the pulp, all 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 goes back into the vineyard and gets incorporated back into the soil. So there, there's very little. There's not a lot of waste through the system. We we obviously recycle glass, cardboard. Um those things, there's there's not a lot of waste that it's quite a sustainable industry. And and because grapes, you know, grow year to year, we're not replacing vines each yeah. year. A vineyard lasts quite a long time.
0: Okay. Um, I just might before I go to the next question. I might ask the students to go back to their nature page, the first one. So you jump back to nature. My question for you here is it's in the nature. Could you describe for me the typical year, the cycle of when you plant, what time of the year, right through to the bottling
1: part? Well, if we start after vintage, so, um, it, so if we're talking, you know, April, May, we would be bottled egg wines from the previous vintage. Um, in the vineyard, uh, the big job is pruning, which happens through June, July, um, once we get to September, the, the vines start shooting away again. So they, they, we prune them right back just to, a, to a, you know, a couple of sticks, a couple of arms through winter. And then once we get to September, we get bud bursts, the vines shoot away. Um, we spend much of the early summer training vines, getting them to grow on the wires, spraying with fungicides, as I said before and then we would generally start picking uh, February, February, March um, each year. Although vintage has been creeping forward. In the time I've been working in the industry, I think vintage is probably occurring anything from 10 to 14 days earlier than it used to occur. Now, that, that's obviously not the same every year, but certainly as a trend, we are picking probably 10 days earlier than we used to traditionally pick. And that seems to be as a result, I mean, it, I don't know if climate change is contentious anymore. I suspect it's not a contentious um, proposition anymore, but, um, but whether you believe in climate change or not, we're certainly, we're certainly picking earlier. Winters tend to be not as cold, vines tend to shoot earlier they tend to mature quicker and so vintage has has crept forward over that time
0: excellent i'll just pause you percent can i get your students to put an asterisk next to that point about the crops um, being harvested 10 to 15 days earlier and pop it into the section later on environmental constraints okay how just keep that in note
1: all right, the, other, I- the other thing that's happening in terms of climate change, you know, is that people are looking more closely, you know, at varieties. And, I, you know, I was saying before, um, you know, one of the things that people are trying to do in the wine industry is match varieties, great varieties, to the climate. Well, as the climate changes, of course, that necessitates changing the varieties we grow. So there's been a move all over Australia towards especially Spanish varietals that tend to grow more in warmer climates uh, in, and in drier climates. Um, so there's certainly a move. Um, you know, Sicilian varieties have been, have been planted a lot just recently. And, and the, the view is that climate change is changing the varieties that we should be growing. I'll add to that for you. Lucy,
0: who was a student from last year, she picked up and she will get, I'm convinced, five out of five for questions on this because she did a research into these Spanish varieties you were talking about. And I hope the students here pick that up on that. And the next thing is that you've added Sicilian now, that wasn't mentioned last year. So that's a really significant factor that's there. That's really, these are the little things that give us the edge and it's really good, Bill. Thank you. Um anything else on climate before I move on to the next one?
1: Oh, how long do you have? <laughs>
0: well, let's um... move on if you get a thought bubble and come back. Okay. Because <laughs> I know I know you love to talk and the times are just brilliant. It's always useful. Um, the next sections on internal and external linkages. This is a wild one that <laughs> goes everywhere. So basically we're looking at things internal to the the, the business. Um, possibly internal to the the valley, and external things. And the four categories are, um, I'll give them to you a a heads up first, the people involved in the industry, your industry, your enterprise, the goods that you produce, for example, like you have the Lovedale Lunch as well, the services, and the different ideas that you have. So why don't we start with people, okay? Number of staff you have, all that sort of stuff, your connections.
1: Yeah, well, we have... It goes, again, it goes back to what I was saying before about, you know, Australia has, had, comparatively to the rest of the world, has quite high labour rates. <clears throat> so, of course, what happens when labour is costly is that people tend to mechanise a lot more. So, for instance, in Australia, um, machine harvesting of grapes is is very common. In fact, it's the most common way that we would pick grapes. You just need a machine and two guys, you know, one driving it, one driving a chase bin. Um, and so that tends to be the way the industry is focused, on mechanisation. Whereas if going back to what I was saying before about the Napa Valley in California, um, because labour is cheap, grapes tend to be hand-harvested. Because hand harvesting is actually cheaper than machine harvesting, so you know the businesses respond to costs. Um, that, in fact, it's the primary motivation of business. You respond to costs, and and businesses will try and minimise costs. And one of the ways we do that is minimising labour input because labour is expensive, um, and so. As much as a lot of people think they're not being paid enough, which which in fact may be the case, um, when compared to a lot of countries around the world, we pay a lot for labour and especially unskilled labour, often, especially in the European countries. In in South Africa, labour is is really cheap what the advantage we have, though, is that the labour force we have is is well educated, well trained. Um, whereas that's the problem with a lot of overseas countries. As much as labour is inexpensive, it's very inefficient. Whereas labour in Australia tends to be more skilled, more trained, and better paid. So we would run the winery with five. Or six um, full time or or permanent part time people, and then we would we would substitute that with with staff at various times of the year where we might get busy, like like picking. If we had to pick yes. some grapes by hand, we would generally use contract labor for those sorts of things. But, okay, but we don't use a lot of labor, and it all has to do with price. It all has to do with cost. So in terms of
0: connecting with other people, do you have a, a marketing arm, a research arm, a, you know, or is it just you as the the, the, chief uh, the culturalist?
1: Uh, well, again, you know, small businesses tend, small businesses have to be multi-skilled. Um, I mean, in a large winery, there might be a winemaker. Well, there certainly would be one or two or three trained winemakers. There might be a couple of trained viticulturalists. There might be three or four trained marketing people. There might be um, an accountant who keeps the books. There might be specialist sales staff who, you know, there might be special telesales staff who just sell on the phone. Small companies can't afford that luxury. So we tend to be more multi-skilled. We tend to do lots of different jobs over the course of, of, of a day or a week. Um, and so what we try and then do is, is fill the gaps that we don't have expertise in, like accountancy with with outsourcing. Yeah. So we would outsource, not not, we certainly don't outsource winemaking because that's the that's our core business. But with things like accountancy, we would outsource to a to another company. Um, research and development, we we certainly well, that's generally outsourced to AWRI, which is the Australian Wine Research Institute. So we rely on government government funding and government um, expertise in terms of R and D. Only only the very largest wineries would actually do their own okay. R and I mean. There might only be four or five of the very large companies who are running their own R&D enterprises.
0: Okay, thank you. So the next thing, the, the the terms here in the syllabus are linkages and flows. And I think the next one leads itself towards an understanding of flow. Um, it's about the goods. So, um, you know, you, you obviously produce grapes and you produce wine, like where do you get the bottling done? Where does it come back to you? How, what's the flow in relation to that side of the business?
1: We generally don't grow a lot of grapes. We've got a, very, a small amount of vineyard, but we. But the business model for Allendale is a little different to most wineries in that <clears throat> we don't have vineyard. We are our core business is wine making, so we tend to buy grapes from growers. Uh, largely independent growers um, from from various regions, as I said before. And that's all to do with um, mitigation of risk, really. So if the hunter has a very bad year and all the grapes rot, we're still getting fruit from other regions. Or if orange has a bad year and it's very cold and they lose a vintage, we still get grapes from the hunter or from young. So... It, the The idea is to mitigate risk by increasing the amount of people and and regions that we get fruit from. Um, so we tend to we tend to make wine. We don't bottle wine. You mentioned bottling. We we tend to outsource that as well. In much the same way we would outsource, <coughs> excuse me, accounting. Um, Where's the Where do you get the bottling done? What's the well, the bottling's done at a company called First Creek, which is a, we, there's a couple of contract bottling lines in the Hunter. We, we just tend to use them. But okay. um, they, the, the problem with bottling is it's a, it's, a, it's a very capital-intensive system. So you need millions of dollars worth of gear. And as soon as you invest millions of dollars in gear, it has to be running 20 hours a day. Yeah. And so once you have a you know an operation that's running that amount of time, um, I mean all our bottling could be done in a couple of days at, yeah. at First Creek. So they have a lot of customers all bottling wine through that facility, and then that's that true. way they can justify having expensive but very good equipment.
0: Okay, so then moving on to the third point about linkages and flows, it's about the services. So you provide cellar door services. I'll just throw a few um, pointers to help you and the, the students. Um, the Lovedale Lunch, yeah, you were at Warunga recently from memory, all these sorts of things. Tell us about the service you provide the community related to the business.
1: Well, you know, I don't know if it's a service we provide to the community, but we we generally, they would form part of um, of marketing and promotions, I guess. So we tend to do <clears throat> events. Uh, just recently, we were at Balmoral Beach. There was a, a Hunter tasting down there. We were at Warunga a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Um, we organised Love Long Lunch, which is a which is an on-site sort of promotion where people come, have lunch, listen to some music, taste the wine. So that all forms part of each. What is each year our promotional or marketing program and cellar door sales as much as it is it's an opportunity to sell wine it's also an opportunity to promote wine so we see cellar as an opportunity for people to you know to try the wines understand the label promote the label it's about promoting the label as much as it is about selling the product mm. in some ways
0: excellent excellent and then the final thing in this section is: What are some of the the the, uh, the current ideas in viticulture? In your case, the making of wine and future ideas about for the industry for you?
1: Well, I think um, it comes back to what we were saying before. I guess the the future is 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 looking at other varieties and and not not only for. Um, because of climate change, but because there are a lot of varieties of grapes used around the world for winemaking. And, and Australia has tended to concentrate on <clears throat> maybe 20 of 30 um, of, of probably what is about 800 varieties. So there's the move in Australia of late has been to look at a whole lot of other varieties that Australia has never really um played with in terms of, of you know of making wine so especially italian varieties there has been a huge push into italian varietals over the okay. last 15 15 years i think
0: excellent so then that that covers off that point the next one's the one that we I quite enjoy talking with you we never said we can never get to one or two things um what are the sort of global changes that have been happening to you and Allendale? You know, we've had COVID. There's China. There's all sorts of things. So feel free to go where you would like. <laughs> <want to go. laughs> well, I,
1: I I would have I would say the biggest single change in the wine industry, <clears throat> the biggest impediment in the wine industry at the moment is the huge tariffs that China have have put on Australian wine. So two or three years ago, um, the Chinese government decided that they wanted to penalise Australia. Um, I think that's a fair way to put it. Um, they wanted to penalise Australia because of, of Australia's stand on political issues. And so they they put in place some trade embargoes uh, on, on a number of products, one of which was wine. And so wine wine sales to China, there was a huge increase in tariffs and the Chinese saw it as a a win-win because they they saw it as something that they could hurt Australia with. But the other thing they saw is that it would help their domestic industry because there's a huge number of grapes being planted in China at the moment, Um, huge volumes of wine being made, often with the help of Australian expertise Um, but generally very poor quality wine. I mean, they've got no idea what they're doing, uh, but they're throwing a lot of money at it, but have very poor expertise, very, very unscientific approach to winemaking. Um, And so generally very poor wines, but very cheap. And so the Chinese government saw it as an opportunity to give a leg up to the domestic industry in China, but also to penalise Australian wine. So what happened is that um, red wine in particular, red wine was the thing that was mostly sold into China uh, predominantly. So half of the wine made in Australia was exported a few years ago and about half of the wine that was exported went into China. So almost overnight, a quarter of the wine that was made in Australia didn't have a home. And what, of course, happened is a lot of that wine that was made for China washed back through the Australian market. And so for red wine in particular, there were there were significant price falls. Uh, there was some very cheap wine. And Australia really struggled to find overseas markets that would um, absorb that amount of wine. It's all to do with politics, and nothing to do with economics. Though the whole the whole China saga. Now, <clears throat> there's I don't know if people have been watching recently, but Chinese and Australian governments have been having a slightly better time of it. There is hope that those um, those tariffs will be reduced significantly and australian wine may again find its way into china but it's a salient lesson in having relying too much on one trading partner i think but the australian wine industry had really as i said half the export of half the wine exported around the world from australia was going into china there was too much reliance um, on on one customer and especially a customer what's the word fickle is that is fickle um, that's all it, right
0: that's pc uh,
1: enough <laughs> <laughs> but it, but a, but a country that would would generally be seen as an unreliable partner what a, is that pc enough yeah that's pc well,
0: i mean the I'm interested because China also has investment in companies in Australia, so it's shooting its own foot as well, which I find quite ironic.
1: Oh yeah, it does. But but you know, if, if in the scheme of things, that's that's quite a minimal, that's quite a minimal sort of amount of enough, investment, yeah. I think. So, um, if we
0: could move on, if that's okay, what's a, what are a couple of other sort of the next layer of global factors that affect your industry
1: at Ireland? Oh, well, beyond that, I guess, you know, there are effects, exchange rate effects have had significant, um, you know, input into into our exports previously. Um, I think the, the fact that there's a lot of new New players, I mean, we were just talking about China, they're planting huge volumes of grapes. Um, South America in the last 10 years, Chile and Argentina have, have both made concerted efforts to take Australian market share in, in overseas markets. Um, both of those countries have, have cheaper setup up costs, they have, cheaper land they have less compliant costs we were talking about before they have less costs that relate to pollution they have less labor costs they have less compliance costs relating to labor Um, so chile and argentina have had a lot of expertise coming in from north america The, the 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 us in particular have put a lot of money into into vineyards and wineries in, and the Europeans as well. The Europeans are putting a lot of money into Chile and Argentina. And those two countries um, have basically tried to copy the Australian marketing playbook. Uh, and they've been very successful and they're cheaper. So I guess international competition is, um, Chile, Argentina, South Africa has, you know, after apartheid has come in from the cold. So a lot of countries are opening up um, to South African wines. Even the Europeans, there's been a there's been a real push, not so much in, in France, who remain very conservative in their approach to wine production, but the Spanish <clears throat> and the Italians in particular. Have, have really lifted their game in terms of quality and marketing and presentation. And, and they've, they've, they've moved from beyond just being, you know, local producers of local wine that they flog at the local markets to really serious international players. Okay,
0: that's excellent. So I, the, the students have got two big points there. Um, you haven't raised these two, and if they're not an issue, I'd like to know why they're not an issue climate change and
1: technology well climate climate change is an issue um i mean it i as i said before i think most people accept climate change is a thing now and so um you know it it has played into this looking into different varieties i think um because climate change doesn't necessarily just mean drier and hotter either. In fact, <clears throat> you know, more recently, one of the bigger problems has has been increased rainfall. Mm. And the Hunter has actually been noticing an increase in, in rainfall, which, which brings its own problems. So um, the whole the whole concept of, of climate change is is. It, I mean, it's problematic for every business, I think. So the wine industry, you know, is is no different. I guess the reason I, it, I don't single it out is because it it is a problem for every industry.
0: Yep, yeah, fair enough. And what about technology? Is technology a big issue, or a <coughs> excuse me, you?
1: technology? Um, technology. Um, Technology is a very long story. I mean, if you go back to the 70s and the 80s, Australia led the world in winemaking and viticultural technology. I mean, we were seen, we were seen as the high watermark. We, we were marketing well. We were making great wines at reasonable prices and the technology we used or employed was, was world-class. Um, I think we've talked about this in other years, too, no, but yeah. but over the last 20 years, successive governments have, have gutted research and development and things like CSIRO, um, you know, which which were world-leading research institutions, have just been pulled apart piece by piece and... And as a country, we've we've really stood back and watched this happen. I think we were the clever country. And I think, you know, people of my generation grew up when when people saw a value in research technology, you know, putting money into, into, into research, that whole thing seems to have changed. I we we now seem to be. Largely driven into applied research, so research that will immediately yield a profit. Okay. Whereas what was driving the Australian industry, the wine industry, and, and I think Australian industry in general, was the fact that there was a huge amount of research being undertaken in all sorts of re, re, you know, regions and areas. And, you know, you might do 20 projects and only one yields something. But that one thing, that one project that yields something is, is internationally significant. And so we seem to have gone from being the clever country to be the adapters of other people's technology.
0: That's really interesting. So I'm just trying to give a, um, a, a an expression for the students. Would it be fair to say that the global changes is making Australia, Less prominent
1: in the wine industry. I think Australia is definitely less prominent now than it was in the wine industry. I can remember in the in the eighties, <clears throat> winemakers from overseas would come to Australia to learn winemaking. Now, that's probably the greatest attribute the Australian industry had. I mean, the you know the idea that um, you know to to want to make wine like Australia was the ultimate compliment. Mm. I don't see that happening as much anymore. Uh, You know, other countries have pushed ahead. They they adapted everything we'd done or were doing, and then they've kept pushing, you know, beyond what we were doing. We seem to have become very comfortable um, sitting on our hands. And mm-hmm. so there's my view across the board is there's a lack of investment into R&D in Australia generally. And, and I unfortunately, I think for your class, they won't come into an Australia where that's, that, that sense of developing technology will be as valued as it was when I left school. When I left school... That technology, that approach, you know, had value. It, it doesn't seem to have that value anymore to me. Maybe I'm just getting old and grumpy. But no, not at all. Um, <laughs> just, uh, it's,
0: a, it's part of the same question um, organic viticulture and wines.
1: Yeah, or, I mean, as I think I alluded to before, we, we, have, we have started, the whole industry has moved towards org- organic. Um, principles generally, and and that's and that's a good thing. Um, m- m- my fear often though is that you know, o- organics are used more as a marketing term than a production one. Okay, and so a lot of what we buy as organic, um, you know, is is greenwash. I think. Um, The other thing, the other significant thing that's happened in the wine industry in the last very recent history is what's called natural wines. So um, that's been a very significant change. You've just reminded me of it. And we probably, in fact, it's so recent, we probably haven't ever talked about this in any other year. I don't think we have, no. But uh, the i mean people there's a there's a real place in the market now for what people are calling natural wines, which are in effect um low intervention wines low low technology wines, and often they're they're spoiled and you know bacterially spoiled so it's an interesting i find it an interesting concept that people would um want to buy something. That's, that are that are unsound. I mean, it, it. The analogy I would draw is if you went into a butcher shop. You know, we generally would go into a butcher shop and buy some chops out of a fridge. Um, you generally wouldn't want to go into a butcher shop and buy rotten meat that was flyblown, and take it home and eat it. Yeah, and yet, it. there does seem to be a move in much of the Western world, I must say, towards natural wines, which are the equivalent of um, of spoiled meat. They're, they're poorly made. They're made with little technology. And the idea that because they're natural, there's something inherently valuable in that. And I I don't see that. I'm, I'm not the person to ask about natural wines because I, I have little understanding of... Of what makes them tick, what makes we, them saleable? We, well,
0: we can research that, so that'd be good. Um, the, I'll just—I'll I'll give the t- students a chance to think if they've got any questions for you. Um, in relation to you now, um, how can you run a business from Young
1: and Hunter Valley? Oh well, I, I'm. People would say I'm not running it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm. I'm sort of stepping back. From from the wine industry, from work generally. So this is um, this is a transition phase okay. for me. So I've I've got an arrangement in place, um, and I'll finish at the winery. Well, on the fourth of November. I've just so, got so I've just got you
0: next year. No, nah, next be. year. Next year. We'll get one more year out of you, maybe.
1: Well, if you get in early, but if you come back on the uh, this late in November, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. I'll have to remember that for next year's year 11. That's really good. Yeah. Um, and if you've got any students, any questions, anyone? They've been madly taking notes. Um, look, I appreciate your time. We've been going for over an hour like we did last last year. Um, thank you so much for your time. I will do what I did last time, see if I can get a few staff to buy your wines. Okay. And um, that, that's the best way to think. Yeah. Okay. So I'll do that. <laughs> um, um, I'm going to encourage when these students are old enough um, to go themselves, but I've also encouraged them to go with their parents to the Hunter Valley and have a look last year, Oscar and student went with his father and took him down Lovedale road and we had him look, but he was too shy to come in and say hello to you. So I hope oh, right. do that to you. Okay. So it's been, this has been really useful. And if this is that I'll talk to you again, but if this is the last time, I get to work with you, I really appreciate it because there's two factors that come into play here. There are 4,000 students in the state who do geography and I'm pretty sure we're the only school now that pretty well has a really good thorough thing with you here. And when these students get questions on this, they will be unique amongst 4,000 students. And the second thing is the clarity, the depth of knowledge you have, every time my students leave this conversation, they realize how much they actually don't know and they've got all these key points that are logically set out that they can start thinking about and processing. So I really appreciate that because it's been so valuable, and I couldn't do that. I learn so much every time. Um, oh no,
1: it, it's a pleasure. I enjoy it. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much for your time.
0: Have a good day, and um, we're all waving to you. Bye. <laughs> See ya. Thanks. Thank you, Bill, so much. I'll speak to you again later. Good luck. See ya. Bye. You. Bye. This off. stop the recording